So I wonder if you've ever been betrayed. Have you ever been betrayed? I remember in high school, Aaron and I broke up. And it was ugly and it was messy. I hadn't exactly sought to, to guard her heart. I was a newer Christian. I hadn't read I Kiss Dating Goodbye, right? It hadn't been written yet. It's another message for another time. But what made it particularly hard was that my good friend, my best friend, named Orion, because yes, everyone in Santa Cruz, California is named after a constellation. All right, my best friend Orion asks her out within days. Didn't even wait a week. He tries to sweep right on in, off her feet, and I'll tell you, that was like a punch in the gut. Not just that it happened, but that it happened from one so close to me, someone I trusted, I didn't see it coming, and hence I felt betrayed. Now sadly, I, I think all of us know that feeling of betrayal, whether or not we've experienced it from a friend or from a loved one, from an employer, maybe from a teammate. But what would you say would mark as one of the greatest betrayals of all time? What would you say is one of the greatest betrayals of all time? And I'm not talking when Wade Boggs left Beantown for the New York Yankees, all right, or when LeBron took his talents to South Beach. Not talking about sports betrayals per se. Beyond sports, what would you say? Maybe a figure like Benedict Arnold. Maybe you think of Brutus, right, betraying Julius Caesar. Maybe you think of Judas betraying Jesus. But here's my question. Among sort of the list and the rank of greatest betrayals, would you expect to find your name on the list? Would you rank as one of the greatest betrayers in history? Well, friend, I want that provocative question to be on your minds as we return to the gospel of Mark this morning. We're going to be, as Kevin said, in, in Mark chapter 14. If you haven't already opened there, I invite you to do so. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you in the ministry guide you received when you walked in, you should be able to find that, I believe, on page 9 and 10. Page 9 and 10. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we're in the very last days of Jesus' life. After three years of teaching and healing, he's been wowing assemblies, and along the way, he's been provoking Jewish authorities. He's been doing all of that. But here, Jesus has now arrived in Jerusalem. The crowds, right, they revere him. But the Jewish leadership, well, they reject him. This outsider from Galilee is a threat to all that they hold dear, right? Their power, their position, their prestige. And because they have rejected Jesus, Jesus, who is the cornerstone of God's new temple, Jesus promised right back there in chapter 13 that every stone of that precious temple would be thrown down and destroyed. And with that, it seems, Jesus' own fate is now sealed. And we pick up the story in Mark 14, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 16. We read Mark 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. 
And while he was at Bethany, referring to Jesus, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they heard it, and they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they were When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and we had given thanks. He gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives." Well, from this point on in Mark, the story really moves inexorably toward the cross, right? The end is near. Jesus knows it. Judas and the chief priests plot it. And this unnamed woman anoints Jesus for it. Now, if there's a key word in our passage, it's that word, perhaps you picked it up, that word betrayal. We see it in how the Jewish leaders turn on him in verses 1 and 2, how they betray him. But more shockingly, we then read that it's actually one of Jesus' own, one of the 12, his inner circle. Judas, in verse 10 that we read, goes to those leaders to betray him. 
And then upon agreeing to this blood money, verse 11, we read Judas sought what he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. And then Jesus reveals that betrayal in verse 18, right? Truly I say to you, one of you will what will betray me? But, verse 21, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So I want us to look at this passage and this theme of betrayal that is throughout the passage. And I want to look at it sort of in three movements. I want to think of it first in the preparation, and then the plot, and then the purpose. So those are sort of the three movements of the passage I want to consider as we think about Jesus' own betrayal. The preparation first, then the plot, and then the purpose. And as we look more carefully at each of these movements along the way, I want us to discover different lessons, different lessons for our own discipleship with Jesus. So let's think first the, the preparation, the preparation. This is really what's highlighted in verses 3 through 9, verses 3 to 9. So it's now Wednesday, and the scene is Bethany. We open up, and we know we're roughly about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And remember, this is where Jesus and the disciples, they've been retiring at the end of each night. The city's too full, right? Lots of pilgrims there, so they're retiring outside the city walls, perhaps for protection too. They're about two miles out in Bethany. They're eating a meal. That's what's meant by that expression. They're reclining at tables, so they're eating a meal. And it's at this point that they're interrupted by an unnamed woman who performs an extraordinary task for Jesus. So she pours an entire alabaster flask, we read. She pours it of nard, this flask, and she pours it upon Jesus' own head. Now, some of you, perhaps like me, you read that word nard, and maybe your first thought is that kind of rhymes like lard or chard or some other rather, well, something that doesn't sound exactly appealing. Let's just leave it at that. So, so, but nard, right? Nard is nothing like lard. Nard is, is actually a perfume that's derived from a very exotic Indian herb. So this is, this is imported stuff, right? This is luxurious stuff. This is the most expensive perfume, in fact, in the whole Bible. So we're not talking like Chanel Number no. 5, which some of you may know, like an ounce goes for about $340, I think. I looked this up. So some of you men who blew Valentine's Day, if you're looking to redeem yourselves, right, that might be one way. But that's not what we're talking about here. This is not a $340 alabaster flask. No, this is 300 denarii. This is basically a year's worth of wages for your average worker. So what is this, like $45,000, $50,000 perhaps? Right? This is like liquid gold, really valuable stuff. And lucrative career opportunities would have been very rare for women in Jesus' own day. So it's likely this represented perhaps her retirement, some kind of rainy day fund if, if cash gets tight. Flasks like this, this, these alabaster flasks, were often family heirlooms that were passed down through the generations. So it obviously had great monetary value. It likely would have had great sentimental value as well. And what does she do? But what she doesn't do is just ever so carefully pop the cork and just drip a drop or two and then quickly seal it back up and put it aside. That's not at all what she does. Instead, jaws drop as they watch her shatter the entire flask, right, holding nothing back, emphasizing the totality of the gift, the entirety of what she has, she pours on Jesus' own head. 
And it's just worth asking yourselves, why would she be willing to sacrifice what was most likely her most treasured possession? Why would she be willing to sacrifice it for Jesus? Well, I would suggest she's willing to sacrifice her greatest treasure in order to celebrate an even greater treasure, right? Jesus, the one who is sitting right before her. And I think what we have with this unnamed woman, and I think she's probably unnamed for a reason, because the point is not her. The point is the example of discipleship that is presented and offered out to us. I think we have a positive example of discipleship. And I think positively we learn, just sort of first lesson uh, as we work through, that genuine discipleship gives everything to Jesus. What does genuine discipleship look like? It's this woman right here. She gives everything to Jesus, turns everything over to him, holds absolutely nothing back. Not because Jesus needs it, not because he's somehow lacking without it, but because he's worthy of it. He's deserving of it. Our everything, our all. The value of a gift often signals the value of the person to whom it's given. So, for example, when, when I first proposed to my wife, I recognized I needed to have an engagement ring. And so coming out of college, what did I do? I purchased an engagement ring. And that ring was the most expensive thing I had ever purchased in my life. But it spoke to the value of the woman whom I hoped would one day be my wife. Well, my Christian friend, does that describe you, this kind of, this kind of generosity, this kind of gift, this gift of hers recognized the incommensurate worth of Jesus, such that even the most precious thing to her, she will happily and freely and graciously, sacrificially give all to him because there is no sacrifice that is too great for Jesus. And that's what marks genuine disciples of Jesus. So friend, again, does that describe you? Is Jesus worthy of your everything? Is he the primary factor in every calculation, in every decision you make? Your money, your time, your efforts, your education, your marriage, right? Who you date, how you date, if you will date, everything, right? The purchases you make, the causes you support, the way you treat your siblings or your parents or your neighbor, right? The way you treat people who can't drive in bad weather like the last two weeks, brutal, right? But how you do all of that speaks to how you value Jesus. And have you surrendered it all to him? Because that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And there's not another way. There's not another way. You know, I wonder if this woman's example reminds you of another woman we've just come across in Mark's gospel. Do you remember the poor widow and her offering back in the temple, back in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44? The one who even in her poverty, we read, gave, verse 44, Mark 12, 44, she gave everything she had. You know, it's interesting how once again, we see another woman getting it right when the men all around them are getting it wrong. That's not to say men are inferior to women or women are superior to men, but it is to note Mark is highlighting 
what discipleship looks like from unexpected people. Point being, these two women do extraordinary things. Though the size of their gifts, the poor widow there in the temple and this woman here, the size of their gifts could not be more different. Jesus equally commends both women for their extraordinary devotion. For there is no gift, there is no act of service that is too small for Jesus. And there are no gifts and no acts of service that are too great for Jesus. Right? It's not what they tithed, whether it was two pennies or like a whole year's wages. It's how they treasured Jesus, how they prized him. That is what matters. That's what discipleship looks like. Right? The disciples themselves, they're not getting it. Because in verse 4, they rebuke her for the way she wasted, they say. Right? She wasted the perfume. But again, Jesus is helping us see that no act of ours, no act of ours on his behalf, however small or large, can ever be wasted. He accepts all of it, right? Whatever we have and graciously receives it, and then what does he do? He rewards it. He rewards it. Jesus says in verse 9, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Your hearing of this verse right now, it fulfills that very promise. You're hearing of it. And yet this is what the disciples, it's what they don't seem to understand. Right? They respond indignantly, we read in verse 4. In that word indignantly, it's the same word Jesus used to describe the disciples back in chapter 10, verse 14. Remember when they were hindering the children from coming to him? Jesus was indignant with them for their behavior. And now the disciples are indignant with this woman for what she has graciously done for Jesus, which is once again just highlighting for us that the disciples, they still don't get it. They still don't fully understand. They're still, if that word indignant, they're being presented as at odds with Jesus, even enemies of Jesus, working against him, the harshness of their own words reflects kind of a hardness of heart and the poverty of their own devotion to the Lord. What's clear is that this woman's act is too radical. It's too fanatical even for Jesus' own disciples. Just notice how the world has never had a problem with religion. The world's never had a problem with religion so long as it's in moderation. So long it's in moderation, they've never had a problem. So you can have Jesus so long as you keep him in private and you keep him out of the public square. Yeah, that's fine. You can have Jesus so long as you don't touch our segregated communities, don't violate our Jim Crow laws. You can have Jesus so long as you don't interfere with my right to do what I want with my body or to define my own sexuality. Right? We're fine with religion in moderation. It's too much devotion. It's this kind of religion that bothers us. And sadly, this is nothing new. Is this not what led Cain to murder his brother Abel? And so we read verse 5, the disciples scolded her. They think the money could have been better used on the poor, Evidently, they don't regard Jesus as worthy of this extravagance. He's not worthy of such a gift. And their own judgment, well, that 
that only demeans Jesus, but we see how that own judgment, it condemns them. So if the unnamed woman is an example being put forth of, of positive discipleship, I think the disciples here very clearly function as a negative example. I think they reveal a second kind of sobering lesson as we work through the passage. And the second lesson is this. You can be close to Jesus and still be an enemy of Jesus. You can be close to Jesus and yet still be an enemy of Jesus. So if you hold yourself out to be a Christian, let that be a warning to you. Let it be a warning to you. Being close to Christian things, being deeply acquainted with Christian things, that alone doesn't make you a Christian. These disciples have been traveling with Jesus now for three years. Nobody should know Jesus better than them. Nobody should understand the gospel that he preaches better than them. And yet, what have we seen? What, along the way, they're, they're hindering the children. They're arguing about which one of them is best. They're mocking and rebuking this woman here for her gracious offering to Jesus, berating her for this wonderful act of devotion. She is anointing him, notice verse 8, for burial. She's anointing him for burial, preparing him for his tomb. And yet, they still are clearly expecting him to ascend a throne. Proof. That like the disciples, you can be really close to Jesus, but still be at odds with him, even be an enemy working against him. But notice how this, this extreme devotion is bracketed. This woman's devotion is bracketed by two extreme acts of deception. Her devotion bracketed by two acts of deception. You have the religious leaders in verses 1 and 2 conspiring against him, and then on the other side, you've got Judas in verses 10 and 11 betraying him. And this helps us move to that sort of, that second movement, right, the plot. The second movement I want us to consider as we turn to the plot. And as we look at this plot, we're going to see in this plot, there are two elements to it. There's a, there's a human element that is clearly at work, and there's a divine element that is also at work. Well, first, let's think about the human element at work in this plot, Chapter 14 opens with the note that it's, it's two days before the Passover, two days before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that's why we say it's Wednesday now, Wednesday of Passion Week. And it's on the eve of these feasts that the, the scribes and the chief priests, we read verse 1, well, they were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Now, by stealth, that expression implies treachery. It implies some kind of, of deceit. In other words, at this point, it's clear the religious leaders, they've given up any notion of law or due process. They're not interested in a fair and impartial trial, not at all. They just want Jesus dead. Now, they can't anger the crowds or worry the crowds, and that's the concern, which is why during the feast of Jerusalem, when the population would swell some five to sixfold, they can't anger the crowds. And instead, what's going to happen is that given the masses of people, one of Jesus' own is going to have to betray him. Judas sneaks away to a back door of the temple, verse 10, and he does, and he slips in in order to betray him. Now, we're not told exactly why Judas, at this point, why he pursues betrayal, John's gospel suggests that at least part of Judas's own motive was money, it was greed, 
You can look at John 12, 5. Perhaps the waste of that woman's gift, those years worth of wages, perhaps that was too much for him. He can't imagine not getting his hand into some of that. But, you know, 30 pieces of silver, which is what Matthew says Judas received for his betrayal, 30 pieces of silver was just a couple hundred, maybe at most a couple thousand dollars. It's actually a relatively small price given the circumstances. So it's also speculated perhaps Judas was, was a zealot. In other words, he was one who was, was eager for a political and military upheaval. And after the temple confrontation, after Jesus talking about submitting to Caesar, right, given to Caesar, what is Caesar's? Perhaps Judas realizes that Jesus isn't finally about political upheaval. Perhaps Jesus' own political passivity frustrates Judas, disillusions Judas, and that's what leads him to betray Jesus. And if so, Judas would not be the first to place political expectations squarely upon the shoulders of spiritual leaders. But either way, Judas was one of those religious people who stuck with Jesus insofar as it paid off. Right? Judas was one who, who stuck with Jesus, but only insofar as it personally paid off. I wonder if you know that type of disciple. The kind of person who's happy to identify with Jesus, happy to go to church, so long as it furthers their goals, right? Doesn't interrupt or interfere too much with their own personal desires. But the second Jesus confronts those desires, the second Jesus clashes with their own personal ambitions, right? They walk away, they abandon him, even turn on him. Do you know that type of disciple? Friends, sadly, there are many Judases in this world. You might just say there's, in that sense, kind of a Judas in every one of us that feels that temptation to walk, to run, to betray when it's not going our way. And what's noteworthy is that Judas does it all. He does it all notice of his own volition. Nobody is forcing Judas's hand. Nobody is holding one of his children as collateral. There's no one coercing Judas against his will. It is his own calculated deception that betrays Jesus. That's the plot, right? That's the scheming that's happening on the human side. And yet behind this deception, there is also, we see, a predetermined plan. There is a divine side to this deception as well. The growing sense as you read through this passage, is that in fact, things are unfolding just as Jesus intended them to. So the mention of verse one, that the chief priests and the scribes, those two groups were the groups that had conspired to kill him. Well, remember, that's actually exactly the two groups Jesus identified back in Mark 10, 33. He said the chief priests and the scribes would betray him. And here they are doing just what Jesus prophesied they would do. And then there's the whole arrangement of the Passover meal itself in verses 12 to 16. You know, as you read verses 12 to 16, did they sound familiar to you? Do you remember the triumphal entry back in, in chapter 11? The parallels between the two passages are really striking. Because in each case, what do you have? You have Jesus sending two disciples into the city. 
And in each case, the two disciples are sent into the city to make preparations, one for the colt that Jesus is going to ride in on, and the other here for the Passover. And in each case, Jesus gives the two disciples very detailed and sometimes mysterious instructions. You know, this has to be an unridden colt. There's got to be a man, like, carrying a water jug, which is odd because in the ancient Near East, men didn't usually carry water jugs. Then they're given very specific things to say. It's almost like code language feels very clandestine. And then, then they obey the instructions, the two disciples do. And oddly enough, they find things just as Jesus had told them, verse 16. Friends, none of this is by accident. All of that is telling us something about Jesus. He, despite all that's happening around him, Jesus is in complete control. He is in complete control. Everything is happening according to plan. Notice Jesus even knows about his betrayal. He even knows who it is that's betraying him. None of the disciples know, but Jesus himself knows. For when they're eating that Passover meal, you know, out of the blue, how this must have shocked the disciples to hear, as they're thinking about the Passover, to hear Jesus just say in passing, verse 18, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now think and imagine yourself as Judas. At that, your heart would have skipped a beat. You might have choked on the bread in your mouth or whatever it was. He's calling you out without saying your name. Of course, the others are left dumbfounded. They're staring at one another. They're, they're saying, well, is it I? Is it I? And the way that expression is in the original, it's more like, surely not me, right? Surely it's not me. And they go around one by one. And he rather, matter, rather matter-of-factly insists, verse 20, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. But then notice what he says in verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Did you catch that expression? He goes as it is written of him. Now, Jesus doesn't specify exactly where this is written. It may well be Psalm 41.9, where David writes, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel, i.e., this one has turned against me. Again, Psalm 41.9. But that expression, as it is written, just highlights really underscores, kind of puts a triple exclamation point on it, that this is all part of God's divine plan. It is part of his predetermined purpose. So recognize again, Jesus is not just some tragic hero caught in events outside of his control. None at all. There's no hint of desperation in Jesus' voice. There is no fear. There's no whispers of anger or futility on his part. We don't find Jesus now running and cowering in dark corners or in back alleys as plots are hatched against him. Not a, he calls him right into the open and says, I know. And it's happening according to plan. He displays, Jesus does, as he has throughout the Gospels, complete control, sovereign freedom and authority to follow the course that he has chosen in accordance with God's will. Judas and others may act against him, but they do not finally act upon him. Think even about the timing. When is all of this happening? It's happening at the Passover. Recognize Jesus chose this week. He chose this night This event as the final showdown, right, as the final conflict. 
It's not by accident that he chose the event that celebrated Israel's exodus from Egypt to depict a new and a greater exodus for God's people. Which brings us to our lesson I want us to see from this point here as the plot unfolds. And the lesson I want us to see is that God's sovereignty is not threatened by human treachery. Brothers and sisters, you need to know God's sovereignty is not threatened by human treachery. And my Christian friend, you need to know this. Because hard, even horrible things may have happened to you. And it's difficult in the midst of those things, reflecting back on those things, it's difficult to understand how God was possibly at work in them, how God could possibly bring anything good out of those things. You know, I've mentioned in the past that, that growing up, I moved around quite a bit. You know, my mom was married three times, and so sort of in Arizona, and then in Massachusetts, and then in New Hampshire, and then out in California, and then landing there. We were sort of apartment to apartment those, that first bit until we finally landed in a place. Now, don't get me wrong. My parents loved me. I am so grateful. They still love me wonderfully. But that last move from New Hampshire to California, that like happened overnight. I left school one day, I got on a plane, and I never went back. Never packed my things, never got to say goodbye to my friends, nothing. I was just landed in this new place where I didn't know a soul. And I didn't even know God. I had no relation with God. I'd never heard the gospel. I'd never read a Bible. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what was happening, what was up. And yet God knew exactly what was happening. Because he would bring me to one of the least churched places in the country for someone to share the gospel with me. And I couldn't have foreseen that. But those circumstances caused me to ask questions. They brought me to a point where I was questioning everything in my life. What I was doing, what it was all about, what are friends, the whole bit, why should I act in particular ways? All these things. God had used all that to, to prick my conscience and start asking these questions and then put someone in my path to say, hey, have you ever read a Bible? Have you ever heard the gospel? Why don't you go read the gospels? Actually, Jesus has a lot to say to you. And I got saved. God knew exactly what he was doing in that season. And it's a constant reminder to me even today when I don't understand what he's about that I can still trust him. I absolutely can trust him. When I don't understand, when everything about my circumstances seem to scream, God, or in your circumstance, you may feel the same way, right? God's, he's left me. God's abandoned me. God evidently, look around me. He's not concerned about me. Look at my life. Look what's happening to me. He is obviously, he's done with me. He's had enough of me. That's what our circumstances can try to scream at us. And yet we think of those days, I do in my past, we think of what's happening right here in the midst of Jesus' own life. And though I don't always understand and you won't either, we can trust him. We can trust him. Will the God who sent his son to die for me, will that God not now care for me? Will he not now support me? Will this God not now sustain me? Will he not now stay right beside me and one day deliver me from it all? Yes, he will. He has and he will. And he will for you too if you are in Christ. But yet notice all this emphasis on God's plan. 
that doesn't mean that Judas is now pardoned. It doesn't mean Judas is exonerated from his own guilt. For as soon as Jesus affirms this is all happening according to plan, verse 21, he says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Right there, divine sovereignty and human responsibility held together, neither one canceling out the other. Jesus is saying that Judas will be judged for what he's done. So severely, in fact, that Judas would have wished he never existed. Never existing will be better than the existence for which he is headed. Right, so much for annihilationism. That's, that's a different matter, but... Friends, I think there's a warning for us here too, though. Judas, I think, is really an example, sadly, par excellence, of one, if you will, who, who believes they can just never send their way out of the grace of God. I think he's a warning about those who might think and might assume that they can never send their way out of the grace of God. Remember him the next time you think you can decide at the point in which you will stop sinning. You know, I'll stop next time, tomorrow, right? Next week, I'm really going to get serious about this sin. There was an example John Henderson gave in, in ABF a couple weeks back about the man who kept running into the burning house, kept thinking he could run back into the burning house and he'd come out fine, kept running back in thinking he'd come out fine, and one time he ran back in and never came back out. Sin deceives as well as hardens. At first, Judas would not repent. Eventually, Judas could not repent. Do not presume that you too can never sin your way out of the grace of God. And friends, this brings us to our final movement. We've thought about the preparation for Jesus' death. We've thought about the plot against his death and the, the human and the divine purposes in it all. And that leads us really to this, thir- this third bit, this third movement of the purpose, which we're going to see more explicitly in these last four verses. Because as we've seen, this betrayal, it's not by accident. None of this, again, is catching Jesus by surprise. Jesus could have easily escaped. Right here, right now, he knew who his betrayer was. He knew what was coming, but Jesus had another purpose in his own coming. And that purpose was to die. It was to die. What kind of death? Well, that's part of what these last verses teach us in chapter 14, really verses 22 through, through 26. Because recognize, we tend to mark significant events. We tend to mark those significant events with significant meals, right? Whether it's Thanksgiving meals, whether it's Valentine's Day, whether it's birthdays, right? Significant events celebrated with significant meals. And it was the same with the Israelites, right? With the Passover, the meal which commemorated the single greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament, right? When Lee read to us earlier from from Exodus chapter 12, how God passed over the houses of Israel when he struck down, uh, rather, he passed over the houses in Egypt, um, and he struck down the firstborn of Egypt when there was blood put above the door frames and above the doorposts. And in doing that, he delivered, God did, his, his oppressed tribal people from Egyptian bondage. And in that action, he actually formed and created a new people. He gave birth to a new nation. That's when Israel was formed there in the Exodus. God was teaching his people back there at the Exodus 
teaching them that they are saved through the blood of a sacrifice. It's what Ryan Troglin mentioned in the intro to Exodus 12. Saved through substitution. A sacrifice would have to substitute themselves and shed blood for the people. And on the eve of that great act of deliverance back in Exodus 12, God gave them a meal to celebrate ever after. And here they are in Mark 14 celebrating that very meal. Only Jesus here does something wholly unexpected. Instead of taking the bread and the wine and then pointing back to when Israel was in Egypt under Pharaoh, instead of pointing back in history, he points them to his body. He points them right to himself, right? My body, he says. My blood, verse 24. Take my body. Drink, this is my blood of the covenant. Jesus is saying that the single greatest event in the Old Testament, commemorated by the single most sacred meal, Jesus is saying all of that, it's about me. I am the Passover lamb, Jesus is saying. I am the one to whom Exodus and the Passover all points. What you have been doing for the last 1,500 years, Jesus is saying right now, right here in your midst, I am the fulfillment of it all. He is the propitiation for their sins. No longer will God have to continue to pass over sins. Jesus, once and for all, will die for them. And so, no surprise, just like the first Passover, Jesus, what's he doing? He's right here gathering his people on the eve of an even greater deliverance, an even greater Passover, to celebrate a meal commemorating an even greater exodus, from a slave master that is far greater from Pharaoh. That's what Jesus is about. And he's teaching his people. They don't exactly have eyes and ears to understand it all now, but they will one day understand it in its fullness. And just as that Passover meal led to the birth of a new people and a new nation, so this meal here would give birth and give rise to a new Israel, one not marked by physical circumcision, but a circumcision of the heart, Paul will say in Colossians 2. This is all when he refers to the covenant. We read in the other gospels, the new covenant. Jesus is drawing them to what Jeremiah 31 prophesied, a new covenant when when God would write his law not upon tablets of stone, but upon tablets of the human heart. Right? He would transform them from the inside out, liberating them from dead works to serve the living and true God. God would do that work in him in this new covenant, in his body, in his blood. Friends, the lesson that I want you to see behind what Jesus is doing is that the salvation we need comes through the sacrifice Jesus supplied. The salvation every one of us needs comes through the sacrifice Jesus supplied. If you've come, if you've come this morning, you wouldn't identify as a Christian. Maybe, right, maybe you're an adult. Maybe you're just a child and you've grown up at UBC, right? You've been coming to UBC all your life. You need deliverance. You need salvation. Every single one of us does. Because our sins have separated us from God. They've created a chasm between us and God. One we cannot bridge. One we cannot cross. Those sins have done more though. They've actually condemned us before this God. Christianity is not a birthright. It's not something we inherit. Jesus 
would not have his life taken from him, he would willingly give up his life. He would, the righteous one, give it up for the unrighteous so that any could be reconciled to God. And then Jesus rose, we read, on the third day. He conquered sin and death so that all those who would repent of their sins, which is just to say who would turn away from sin and say, you know what, God, I know what you say about my sin and I know how I want to defend it, but I'm going to take your side against my sin and I'm going to turn from it and I'm going to trust you and I'm going to look to Christ by faith and rest in Christ and rest in his work. For all who do that, they can be forgiven, they can be saved, and they can be set free. That is the wonderful news of the gospel that all of us need to hear and need to repent of our sins and trust in this Christ, gracious as he is. But friend, recognize if you're a Christian, you may have heard that message. You may be tempted to tune it out, but it's the same for you. What God commands of you, you need to know right now, Christ has already supplied for you. He has already supplied what God commands. You don't have to work for God's favor this morning. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to go out and do it. Christ has earned it. He has purchased it. He has won it. And he has sealed it all, he says, with his own blood. You don't have to make yourself right with God. That's what Christ did on the cross and through the resurrection. He made you right with him through faith in him. And like the Israelites in Exodus 12, what you need to understand is that God did all of this not because you're better, but because you've been covered by blood. It's not that you're better. None of us. That is, we don't rest our hope in that. It's that we've been covered by blood. It's not that we are superior, but rather we have received a sacrifice for us. You know, notice something, the, the Passover was typically celebrated by sort of nuclear families. So fathers and mothers and children. And the child would traditionally ask the father about what happened in Egypt. And the father would then go on and tell the story. It would be a long story with four different parts and wine and food. And it would extend for hours. And yet here we have Jesus. And this is his final gathering with the 12 disciples right here. Here we have Jesus, and he's not sending them home to be with their families. He's instead taking this meal with the disciples. Those who don't share familial bonds. Because his new covenant community would not be fundamentally marked out by physical families, but by a new spiritual family where Jesus himself is at the center. Here Jesus is turning friends into a new and greater family through faith in him. That's what he's about. So members of UBC, do not forget that what unites us fundamentally is our common faith in this Christ and in his sacrifice for us. Jesus is not gathering his disciples and we do not gather around our voting records. He doesn't gather them around their view of tax policy. That is obvious because you've got zealots like Simon and maybe Judas, and then you've got a tax collector like Matthew. One worked for Rome, and the other was seeking to overthrow Rome, and they all became disciples together. He doesn't gather them around their precise view of church and state. 
He doesn't gather them around their view of balanced budgets or immigration policy or a view of masks or homeschooling or vaccinations or whether or not the Kansas City Chiefs have to change their name because we've been oppressive to indigenous peoples, right? He just, none of that's why we gather. Now, that's not to say those things are unimportant, but in his new covenant community, those things are not of ultimate importance. And we undermine Jesus' work and we undermine our own fellowship and our unity when we elevate such things to ultimate importance. Those saved by his blood are being saved into a body. And the glue that holds it together is their shared bond in this Christ. For friends, it's not just Judas I want you to see. It's not just Judas who betrayed Jesus. Every one of us in our own sin should see ourselves in him who would walk away, who would reject, who would even loathe what Christ would call us to in genuine discipleship. And we would pursue ourselves. We're not finally saved because we act better or think better but because we have been covered by blood. The blood of Jesus poured out for many. Friend, are you this morning covered by that blood? Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray and we pray that as we consider a text like this and we consider the kind of rebellion that lies in the human heart, the kind of misunderstanding that can affect all of us, even who are close to Jesus and who think we have walked faithfully with Jesus, still we can misunderstand him, misunderstand him. God, we pray that you would bring about true discipleship in us that sees him for the incommensurate worth that he is and gives all to him. And it's in that name we pray, amen.